0: And welcome to another episode of What Have We Done?
1: And it's New Year's Eve, so happy almost New Year. We're really excited to end the year with another podcast. We're doing good.
0: Absolutely. And I think to celebrate New Year's Eve, we had some special wines we wanted to open. And because of that, we uh, sort of picked a topic today that's a little bit more, I don't know, nebulous, I guess, Mm -hmm. but nonetheless interesting. Um, and that is on family owned wineries.
1: So yeah, so we'll run through a little bit about the landscape of wineries around family owned wineries and then kind of dig into a couple of the family owned wineries you may know about. Um, kind of telling their stories, sipping their wines. We're lucky enough to have two of those wines with us today. And then, of course, we'll just amuse you with our amazing wit. <laughs> yeah. So how about you tell us a little bit about what is a family-run winery? Well, before I jump into family-owned wineries, um, I had a question mostly about like family-owned wineries versus X. I feel like when we were in California, we were doing a really good job of going to smaller wineries, and it never really crossed my mind until we were... You know, driving around the back country of Sonoma or Napa that there are these massive plots of lands with like grapes as far as the eye can see. And you can tell by you know the sheer volume of grapes that it's definitely not a small winery, but probably corporate owned. So one of the questions I had was like, what is a corporate winery? like what defines it? And so, um, right off the bat, there's a lot of contention on the internet about corporate-owned wineries uh, just because, uh, particularly in the wine industry, which has kind of been known as being smaller, more as one article said it, which I'm not necessarily a fan of the term pioneering or bootstrapping industry, uh, corporate wineries like E&J Gallo. 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 Kendall Jackson, (laughs) Bronco, and the wine group have kind of started to buy up a lot of the smaller wineries that, and I'll get into this in a second, um, despite the fact that family-owned wineries are still pretty dominant in like the wine scene. Um, And so some of the articles that I read online talked about how, you know, the reason to kind of go corporate is really based on how expensive it is to run a winery, A, and then B, you know, since there's an increase in wineries in existence. So um, this one article I was reading was that now there are like over 11,000 wineries in the U S and this is like up 50% since 2009 that's just a ton of different winery competition how do you get your wine to consumers and so there's that question of you know corporate wineries have a little bit broader of an, an audience can you know have that consistent funding so do you go corporate in order to just kind of preserve the fact that you can make wine um and then of course there is the cost you know a lot of the corporate wines that we see on the shelves are, you know, pretty consistently priced. Um, They're everywhere. (laughs) And so, you know, there's this balancing act between like, is it worth it to kind of try and get your small winery wine in a supermarket? Or do you just kind of keep it to the tasting room or, you know, all of those kind of factors you have to think about. So that at least in a very broad brushstroke was kind of the corporate landscape of wineries. And, you know, something that it made me think about is, you know, as we are like, as we discussed before about like labor and um, the different ways in which the accessibility to winemaking is shifting, particularly with, you know, a lot, and we'll talk about this later, um, you know, people who traditionally weren't in the winemaking industry having access to it, you know, what does that kind of change the landscape of this too?
0: Um, but a family owned winery is, well, I, I honestly, I couldn't find like a real established definition I think it's an interesting topic to talk about in contrast to what we talked about last episode about urban wineries. This is kind Mm. of the more traditionally associated with wine world type of business model. Um, But yeah, I couldn't find like an official definition. I don't really think there is one, but I think there are things that we associate with that idea. Um, And that's sort of similar to the corporate um, wines in that they're sort of family name based um they're very much like growing their own grapes they're sort of larger productions in terms of it's not just like an urban winery but they have you know the vineyards their production facility it's all kind of done um that way but they can be like they can be various sizes um and i think there's a few different reasons why family-run wineries are so dominant in the industry and part of that is because they have this incredible ability to have multi-generational long-term planning around production and business decisions, Hmm. um, which is really interesting in contrast to even maybe some urban wineries, but especially the larger corporate wineries. Um, Just in that corporations and especially like a publicly traded company has a lot of short-term requirements and metrics and responsibilities they have to accomplish that may or may not be in line with longer term visions, um, which specifically in the wine industry is important because the timeline from starting a small family run wine operation to developing a product that is available for release and much less like actually making money hmm. uh, can be decades. And I think that it's just, it's not very uh, conducive to a larger corporate model, even though there are some great success stories. I think, you know, E&J Gallo, say what you will, but I think that's very much like a successful model of how that how that can look. Um, and as you mentioned, a, a lot of the family wineries, and I think we talked about this before as well um, in other episodes, that direct-to-consumer sales um, through tasting rooms can be the majority of family-owned um, winery revenues. So they're not necessarily looking to get into supermarkets. They might be looking to get into a couple of local restaurants. Um, It's not that they're only necessarily served at the winery, but they're largely only available as direct-to-consumer models, which means they tend to be more expensive. Yes. Um, And part of the, I don't know, the pricing into wine, there's a lot of different factors that we talk about a lot. um, But definitely the family-run wineries, the smaller ones, the more prestigious ones, uh, you are paying for that family name. Um, and I know a lot of interesting family run wineries that have kind of been passed along from generation to generation. It's a very kind of, I don't know, it's it's maybe a little bit less of an attractive business model to talk about in 2021 as it might've been in like a different, more like romantic time of like weird nepotism and <laughs> like just business models that are very like, I don't know, like we're a family, you know, we're not like a place of work. I don't know. There's all sorts of weird stuff that goes along with that. And I think Maybe ideas are are shifting quite a bit on sort of how we talk about those types of concepts, but the the this still remains is sort of like the main the main idea of of many of the traditional wineries, um, not just in in the old world, but here in America as well.
1: And as like this makes me think a little bit about this article I was reading about corporate wineries is one of the, I guess I don't want to call it a maybe a romanticization is a good way of saying it is like you know. Corporations have no hearts and like family owned businesses have those like really core morals. And one of the wineries was discussing their decision to go with a larger corporation because they do have more ability to, to pay for like green technology in Mm -hmm. a lot of ways. And that aligned with what their values were. And that's not necessarily always the case, but I guess that corporation was willing to, Mm -hmm. you know put in for that infrastructure and they're like well we wouldn't have the family owned winery wasn't able to pay for that kind of machinery on their own so you know there it's a complicated
0: question and i don't know if i've talked about this on the podcast or not but i I, I work in the nonprofit sector um i don't make a an income talking about wine unfortunately oh that'd be Um, the dream (laughs) if someone out there wants to fix that please be my guest um but one of the nice things too about large corporate wineries, I could speak for like Gallo in particular, they're based in a geographic area that my nonprofit works in and they do a lot of corporate philanthropy too. And part of larger corporate models is giving back. And while yes, Gallo is very much not like a traditional small family, um, type of an operation, uh, it doesn't mean that they're not still getting back to the community. They're not tied to that community. They don't still have mm. very interesting, um, and I guess heartwarming, like, you know, uh, ethics and, and, and models and stuff. And they, they do give lots of money, um, into the, back into the community. They, they run like different like hospitality programs for disadvantaged communities and things to get them into the wine industry. Um, lots of community grant making, that kind of thing, which is very, very cool. Um small family wineries also you know they can't necessarily give money, they don't make enough money. It's not to say that they wouldn't if they if they couldn't or they would if they could, but they also will do like donations and things like that. They're still giving back and being active members of their community but um it is nice to have the larger corporate wineries as well that can do sort of more large scale um community action things that maybe uh, are beyond the the means of smaller family run operations
1: and with that being said, I feel like the examples of the family-run wineries are ones that we're going to talk about today are ones that are super invested in their communities and are like a really great example of how, you know, maybe not every small family-run run winery can have like a large, like necessarily like a large impact, but some can. And they're making like lots of ripples in the wine community. And it's, I'm so excited to hear more about these different
0: wineries um. yeah and before we jump into our wines and the, the two family-run wineries we're talking about today i do want to give a quick shout out to wenty wineries in livermore california as many consider to be the oldest family-run uh, family-run winery in the united states dating back to 1883 by a german immigrant uh, named carl wenty and i think we talked about this in our chardonnay episode but um they're they're very famous for bringing a a, a strain of Chardonnay grape from Montpellier, France. Um, And I think a lot of, a lot of the history of wine in the, in the new world is also stories of immigration and things that we're going to get to a little bit later in this episode as well.
1: Right now we are tasting the black girl magic red blend by the McBride sisters. It It was bottle, or it's a 2019, um, and I'm not actually sure of the exact blend, so we're going to guess. This bottle specifically was produced to honor um, the resilience of Black women um, and um, their entire story as I'll get into is really about elevating, um, people of color in the wine industry and particularly women, uh, in the industry. And they do a
0: lot to support them. So what do you think? I'm trying to think of what it is. I'm trying to think of my best guess. I'm not sure if we should play the guess this varietal game, uh, being recorded. I don't know. The pressure's on. That's fair. Grash for sure. I don't know what else is in here. It's not very, it's a lot lighter than I thought it would be. It's very medium bodied. Mm -hmm. Um, Very rich, very fruity. Uh, Not a lot of depth or complexity, but super drinkable.
1: Yeah, definitely getting like a light jam, Mm -hmm. light fruits, or not light fruits, but like light berries. Maybe a little bit of vanilla.
0: Yeah, I do get the oaky stuff.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: It's nice, but it's almost like sweet, vanilla, caramely, almost like candy. Yeah, bit.
1: exactly. All right. So let me tell you more about the McBride sisters. So uh, this winery was founded by two sisters, Robin and Andrea, and they actually didn't know they were sisters until very, like, very much later. Uh, they grew up in two different parts of the world. Um, Robin grew up in Monterey and uh, Andrea grew up in New Zealand. And they, the story, and it, it was a really big story a couple of years ago where they found out that they have shared the same father and had two different mothers. Um, and they grew up both in winemaking regions and shared this really amazing passion for winemaking. Um, and so when they found out about each other, uh, they decided that wanted to go into business together. And I was reading one of their interviews and they spoke about how something that was really important to them was not only just producing wine, which they didn't really have any background in, but also really understanding the wine process, making process from beginning to end. And so since Andrea had connections in New Zealand and knew a couple of different producers and like small family um, wine producers, there, uh, they actually went to New Zealand and spent four years kind of seeing what that process looked like, and made a pretty much a bridge between New Zealand and California. And when they were able to launch their business in the fifth year, they had a pretty good idea of like what it meant to start a winery with you know limited funds, and um, what it also means to make accessible wines. And so their entire premise behind their label and behind their brand is accessibility, particularly for black women. And so a lot of their wines are deliberately made to be, um, supporting, uh, women in the wine industry. And they were able to, you know, create enough of a, I guess, um, I don't know, foundation is the wrong word, but a foundation for them to also offer uh, grants and scholarships. So the sisters founded She Can Fund and it promotes women in the wine industry. So they have leadership training, education, as well as um, allow, like pay for, you know, women to go to conferences and it's just all to support this like really, growing wine and straight. I think last year they put out like 300, I'm going to, I don't want to butcher amounts of money online, but it was a significant amount of money for these grants and scholarships. Um, and another thing that they did was they also were part of the movement of putting wine in cans. And I know we spoke about this in another episode about like, you know, do you put Wine in cans because glass is so expensive. It's often not recycled pro- properly, and at least with aluminum, there is more of like a a system in place and infrastructure in place for that recycling. So um, that also kind of broadens the amount of people who you know may not be interested in wine, but they can get a rosé in a can, and that's like something fun, light, uh, supposed to kind of bring
0: people together in a different way.
1: Um, so yeah.
0: Yeah, I couldn't believe this story when I first like looked it up. I, I thought it must be like fake, and I found this like YouTube documentary thing on it. I'm like, oh, okay, this actually checks out. This is just wild. It's such a just a yeah very crazy and heartwarming story, and it's cool to see. Um, I actually don't know how this translates like different regions, but at least in larger cities in California. He can start seeing this wine kind of everywhere, which is really, really cool. It's definitely like taken off as like a brand. Um, and that's just really great to see as well. Um, and it's this is quality stuff. I really do like, I think for the price, I think they're all under $20 wines. They're not making super high end wines. It's very, very much accessible stuff. And I think it's really great value. So it's really cool to see to see that kind of just growing and being so successful.
1: And I love it too because like, for example, I believe it's their rosé they dedicated to their mothers um, and they also have, like, a seltzer, I believe, that's dedicated to their daughters. So, like, it's very much, you know, celebrating family, particularly female relatives and, like, creating that community that you may miss in a winery that is growing. You know, it is pretty significant mm-hmm. that they have such a large um business and brand. And so it's, it's nice to kind of feel like you're a part
0: of that family when you mm-hmm. buy a bottle or you get a can.
1: I and, think that's and, really important.
0: And what are the chances of growing up independently in two of like the greater, like new world, like ro- wine regions, uh and then being able to kind of bring the best of both of those worlds together Exactly um, into wine. I know they're, they're based in California, but I'm sure. They're bringing different stuff from the New Zealand uh, wine scene as well into what they're doing it's very cool yes i like it
1: and i like i like that this wine too so we're drinking it at room temperature it's a little chilly out so it's a it's like a nice temperature i can definitely see this being like a perfect outdoor wine like you're sitting outside
0: you're enjoying like it would go really well with a lot of different foods i like it Cool. And the second winery we want to talk about today is called Mi Sueño. And it is a small family run winery in Mount Vitor area of Napa. And I think we've mentioned this a couple of times before um, about sort of racial imbalances in the wine world. But one of the more visible ones um, growing up in California is that the majority of labor and the Napa wine industry is Mexican-American. Um, but so few wineries are run by Mexican-American families. The representation in the industry is huge, but so, so small at the top. Um, it's just one of the more just just really very, very visible imbalances. So today, I didn't want to talk about um, a Mexican-American-run family winery. <laughs> and it is run by a man named Rolando Herrera. Who, with his family at the age of 15, immigrated from Mexico in 1975, um, his father came here with his family looking for work and found himself in Napa working in a vine nursery. In 1980, his father actually retired and the whole family moved back to Mexico. But in 1983, Rolando and his brother decided to move back to Napa looking for new economic opportunities having really enjoyed uh, the time they spent growing up in the Napa area and trying to make it in the wine world. And Rolando started working at, in Napa at Stag's Leap, a very, very famous winery, first as a dishwasher and then as a manual laborer. Um, and then he kind of slowly worked his way up and moved to working as a cellar rat. At the same time, he was also finishing his high school degree. So he was going to school during the day and working in the night. Um, Interestingly, his wife Lorena, also um, the daughter of Mexican immigrants and migrant workers, also works in the industry and helps him run the winery as well. Um, Slowly, Rolando worked his way up uh, to Cellar Master and finally started producing his own wine. he and his wife, Lorena, got married and produced 200 cases of Chardonnay from purchased grapes. He did not own land or anything like that, uh, but saved that money to buy a bunch of grapes and make a bunch of wine and started kind of pitching it around. Because of his time working in the industry in Napa, he'd come to make some really good business connections and was able to kind of bring his wine to different social events and gatherings and stuff. And he got really great great feedback, um, sold out very quickly, made more money, and then kept doing that until he could start his own winery and purchase some land. Um, he, he actually didn't have enough money in the first few years of starting Misueño to do that full time. And he was actually working at multiple other wineries as well. Uh, while well, He kept learning in the wine business and slowly was able to purchase more um, small plots of land to grow different vines. And some interesting fun facts about Mismeno Winery is the 1999 uh, Carnero Chardonnay was served at the Bush White House at a state dinner honoring the president of Mexico at the time, Vicente Fox. The 2006 Russian River Valley Pinot was poured also at the Bush White House during the 2008 Cinco de Mayo celebration. And in President Barack Obama's first state dinner honoring Mexico's president at the time, uh, Felipe Calderon, uh, he served the 2006 Herrera Cabernet Sauvignon um, from the Herrera label, which was um, his sort of second family-like label under his his last name. Specifically, uh, Mi Sueño means like my dreams. It's very much an immigrant story of coming to America, um, working really hard, and eventually getting enough to uh, to do something that is your own. And um, the, the Herrera portfolio, the Herrera wines are um, single varietal, single vineyard bottlings, all from estate vineyards named after the family's children.
1: That's really cool. Yeah. So our upcoming, <laughs> you're going to hear it, time is a loop. But it, I think this is also like this vineyard, talking about this vineyard is also a really great, or winery, excuse me, is a great connection to what we were speaking about last time about Mexican wines and, you know, the different ways in which they are breaking these dominant norms in who are the laborers and who are the owners and who has more authority over, you know, the production of wine. And so it's cool. I mean, this is the first time I'm tasting a Nispoinio
0: wine, so I'm excited to see. Yeah, I think diversifying wine made here in america to reflect the the population that that lives and and enjoys wine here is really critical Mm -hmm. uh, while also promoting uh the growth and expansion of wine production in underrepresented countries like mexico itself um i think both of those are very important things, kind of happening simultaneously here that um are very exciting and bring great wine everyone wins when this stuff happens so
1: and i think both
0: Vineyards as well, like both
1: McBride Sisters and Misueño are showing that it's not like a, it's not easy producing wine. It's not easy having a winery and, you know, it's, they could have easily not been successful. And so also their wine is a testament to the fact that it's a lot of hard work to be a family owned winery and to survive. um, And also know that you're making space for others like you in mm-hmm. the industry mm-hmm. so excellent ready to taste ready
0: okay so we are drinking mis sueños 2016 la chole red wine it is a red blend i had a hard time finding exactly what the blend is uh, I believe it is Cab Syrah Malbec, but grain of salt, that might not be accurate. Uh, also, I don't know what La Chole means. If any of our listeners speak Mexican Spanish and want to give us some insight into that term, please do.
1: So as you we were pouring, I could, this wine is definitely quite inky, a lot uh, deeper in color than the... Uh, Black Girl Magic, which is definitely more on the, like you said, medium-bodied side.
0: Yeah, this is a this is a huge wine. I guess first disclaimer, I want to say we, we do want to be transparent about price and things on, yes. on this podcast. We do almost all the time try to feature wines under $20. This is a rare exception. This is an expensive bottle. Um it's a small production thing. It's a it's a fancy Napa name. There it's wine being served at the White House. Um so it's New Year's Eve. We're celebrating and spurging a little, but uh just wanted to make that put that out there. This is this is not what I would consider in any way sort of an accessible um go to kind of a wine. Yeah.
1: Saying that all being said, it's pretty fantastic.
0: Yeah, this is pretty great. I I believe the the blend that, that all, yeah, you know, checks out. I agree. This is a big, big wine. This is a, this is a lot. You get a little bit
1: of tobacco, or at least mm-hmm. I get a little bit of tobacco. You get the tannins, but it's, it's like a, a slow clap tannin. It's, it's mm-hmm. not a hit you in the face. It kind of sits at the middle tip of your tongue and is very, very well balanced with the like fruit i want to say it's like a dark jam like you're getting your Mm -hmm. this is going to sound weird but like a rum cake whatever like the like rum cake fruits are like so those plums those prunes a bit of like black cherry those kinds of Mm -hmm.
0: slow cooked over a fire sort of feel yeah Jammy, yes, dark fruits. I definitely get the leather tobacco thing. I don't really know where that's coming from. Um I can't associate that with any type of other even cabs and things from the same Mountain Feeder area that I'm familiar with. Hmm. It's a little bit a little bit different. Uh the tannins are soft, subtle uh, and present throughout. It's a very long finish. Yes. It's it's a mouthful. It's well-oaked. I think this has been aging for quite some time. It is a 2016. and I, I believe we picked it up at release last year, so it's probably two to three years or so hmm. um, aged in barrel. Oh, yeah, it's a lot.
1: Yeah. Mm. But I can imagine this being really good with... Like, I can drink the, uh, drink this wine with food. Like, we've definitely spoken about on the podcast. Wines that you cannot drink with food because they're just the star of the show. And I like that this could be paired with like a nice hearty dinner um, and not get completely either obscured or to, you know, obscure the food itself.
0: Yeah. One pro tip about um, buying and drinking wines from smaller family run boutique wineries that, do tend to get a little bit expensive, um, is that they tend to highlight and showcase single varietals from the areas they come from. So Misuenya really focuses on cabs, chardonnays, and pinots, which are representative of the parts of Napa in which they're growing grapes and producing grapes. And those are the more expensive flagship, um, well-known kind of wines. Um, But often these places will do blends that could be red or white. That tend to be much more accessible because they're getting smaller quantities of the different types of vineyards, so it automatically brings the price down. Red blends are never as expensive as single varietals, just because that's the way the wine market works. And often they're they can be a really cool representation of a winemaker's like vision, because um, they're really kind of crafting their own ideas around a wine. Um, so if you can't always afford the big, super fancy cab, um, there might be, a for a half the price, a red blend that has bits of the same cab from the same vineyard that you can taste in the blend in different contexts, which is also a great way to just get access to and try different, um, more fancy wines. Sounds great to me.
1: Shall we do Wines of the Week? Let's do it. All right. So my Wine of the Week, is a Tempranillo Dacu. It's a Ribera del Guardiana from Spain. Um, And I had it at a local DC restaurant, which was very lovely. It is pretty bold, um, probably medium tannins, and quite dry, which is... Exactly what I was looking for. It was. It's been really cold. Uh, duh, it's winter, but it's been chilly, and so the Tempranillo is exactly what I was looking for. Something bold and slightly acidic, um, dry. Well, medium acidity um, to kind of warm me up. And it definitely has like those blackberry notes, a little bit of the plum, um, probably a little bit of vanilla tobacco, but it's very very mild. Um, and I also just love Tempranillos. Anything that reminds me of Spain, um, uh, <laughs> is good. And it, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty affordable. I feel like the glass was only like $11 and $11 glass in DC is actually not bad.
0: Yeah. That <laughs> oh, sounds great. And my wine of the week is a Casata Manfort Toraligo Rotaliano of 2019, um I'm sure I've talked about Taraldigos on this podcast, but if I have not <laughs> I will never not take the opportunity to wax poetic about one of my favorite underrated grapes in this world, and that is the taraldigo. It's an Italian varietal. Um it's relatively common in one small area. Do I know what area that is? I do not. Um I don't remember. I don't remember either. But generally, even in Italy, it's not very common it's even less common outside of Italy and it's just so good. It's this really really special grape. I've never had a bad one. I swear. It's like it's like magic. Like it's uh it's it's cheat mode um for making wine. Like you just can't you can't mess it up. It's just so good. Uh, this is under $15, super inexpensive, super accessible. Torreliego, it's more of a medium to even sometimes borderline full-bodied Grape, which is not what we generally think of when we think of uh, Italian grapes. I actually don't think it's a food wine. Um, Some people disagree with me, but I think it's just great on its own. It's weighty enough, but it's just, uh, I just want to enjoy it. Not so light that I'd want something to sort of supplement it and bring out the full characteristics of it. It tends to be a little bit chewy and tannic. Mm -hmm. Um, So if that's your thing, which it is mine... You're gonna love it um, it's yeah it's just it's a very very consistent, really, really wonderful grape, and so hard to find if you just if you see a toralgo just buy it you will not you will not uh you know regret that um, and that's my wine of the week yeah, that sounds great. I love Torralgo's as oh, well so good
1: <laughs> well, that's I think everything we wanted to talk about in terms of family owned
0: wineries yeah, we've had a great. 2021 talking about wine with you all and we look forward to uh, another year yeah happy new years everyone and i don't know yeah stay safe
1: stay safe enjoy your wine talk to you soon bye mm-hmm.